I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Wendy Dean. She's an alum of Smith College and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She trained in surgery and psychiatry at Dartmouth Medical Center. After practicing for a decade, she worked for the U.S. Army, where she managed regenerative medicine research funding and guided strategy for a $70 million investment in the emerging field of hand and face transplants. She also worked to develop novel strategies to restore form, function, and appearance to ill and injured service members. Her focus now is on finding innovative ways to make medicine better for both patients and physicians through her nonprofit, Fix Moral Injury. She's the recent co-author of If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. And she co-hosts the podcast, Moral Matters, Moral Injury of Healthcare. Wendy, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. So maybe we can first start off by defining our terms, because I think people are used to hearing different things. Most people probably know of like physician burnout or burnout in the workplace. But in a lot of your work and writing, you refer to moral injury of doctors. What's the difference between the two? And why do you use moral injury more often than burnout? Well, so I think that part of the reason that that we use moral injury more often is simply because we're trying to raise awareness that it, not everything is about burnout. It doesn't mean that burnout isn't a thing. It is there's enough distress in the field of healthcare right now to go around. Like nobody needs to have a corner on any market. The way we break it down, there is no doubt the operational challenges and the the overburden of healthcare workers that leads to a demand resource mismatch and results in burnout. There's no question about that. We are working too hard, too long, et cetera. But as we were talking to literally hundreds of clinicians, most of them would say, yeah, I'm working too hard, but that's not, it's not all of what I'm feeling. I'm also really challenged by knowing what my patients need and not being able to get it for them because of how the system is structured. And so that piece to us felt very different. It felt qualitatively different than the demand resource mismatch. And when we broke it down, what we were hearing over and over again was, I trained to know the gold standard of care for patients, and I can't get it for them because of constraints outside of my control. The How our reimbursement system is structured, how our priorities in healthcare are structured. And what that sounded like was moral injury, which is a betrayal by a legitimate authority in a high stakes situation that causes you to transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. And for healthcare clinicians, that sounded to us, those, those deeply held beliefs were the oaths that we took to put our patients first. And so being asked to consider the bottom line before our patients' well-being feels like we are betraying that oath. Maybe you can give us, I mean, you run in, the, in your book, you run through some examples of this, but maybe you can give some examples of, of this moral injury in medicine um, and, and how it's so impactful both for patients sure. and physicians. So a great example was in chapter seven, Rita Gallardo. She was a, she's a hematologist who quit two jobs in five years 
when she was asked by her, her health system to refer patients within her system to keep the revenue flowing within her system rather than sending her patients an hour down the road to a specialist in their rare condition. And she said, I, I can't do that. I, I know that's not what's best for them. I know it's best for, the, for my hospital system, but that's not what I trained for. And so when she referred, when she continued to refer patients down the road, she was chastised and she knew that her job was on the line. And so she left rather than continue to feel complicit in providing her patients with um, less than optimal care. Part of the consequence then is that physicians essentially leave medicine. They, they leave this calling, their vocation. Some of them do. Rita, though, instead carved out a DPC practice, a direct primary care practice, where her patients can see her directly. There's no middleman. There's no hospital system involved. Um, and she's also able to provide some of her um, oncologic care in that practice as well. So she's stepped outside of the big systems. Now, what that does is it puts her personally at risk, meaning she doesn't have a stable paycheck to, to fall back on. But what she says is, it's allowed me to practice and care for my community in a way that I imagined I would when I first went into medicine. For her, the trade-off has been worth it. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, that seems like a very... It's a very unusual path and a very difficult option for physicians to take. What about those who maybe can't um, take that third route, who feel kind of trapped by the system? Do they just keep on trucking? And how do others react to this betrayal? Uh, there's a whole spectrum of ways that folks react. So what we tend to say is that in the context of that betrayal that I talked about earlier, physicians have an opportunity before they, before they transgress their deeply held oaths to speak up, stand up, push back and say, I'm not going to acquiesce to this. This isn't right for my patients. So they can, in speaking up, they reduce their risk of moral injury. Now, having said that, <laughs> I also we're also very, very clear that it is not always possible to speak up and stand up. We have education debt. We have mortgages. We have kids that we're trying to take care of. So it, it is often a forced choice that we must acquiesce because we have to keep paying the bills. In that case, there are some clinicians who will speak out within the context of their systems to say, here's what needs to change. Here's why it needs to change and just be persistent about it. Um, you know, they sort of, they pick their small battles that are personal, local, and possible uh, to, to change those things that they think are most egregious. There are also other clinicians who say, you know what, I just need to get through this and I just, I cannot see the betrayal that's happening. And I cover that a, a bit in chapter four with this thing called betrayal blindness, where in order to keep doing the good work that we do, which no one, no one would argue that being a physician is not good work. It is still good work. 
and to keep taking care of patients, there's this psychological process where you stop seeing those betrayals because it's too painful to be confronted with that every day. And for some that works for a while and then they pick another course. You know, this isn't, it's not a one-time decision that we have to make. We can choose different pathways at different points in our career. You know, unfortunately, there are a very tragic few who can't live with the choices they have to make. There is a chapter in the book about a physician who dies by suicide, and it's very tragic. And there are many steps along the way in his path where there could have been interventions if we had been paying closer attention to what's happening besides simply burnout. Yeah, maybe we can talk a bit about what this betrayal looks like. What does the system or what aspects of the system lead physicians to this or lead to moral injury to physicians? What kind of things are we thinking about? Well, first, I want to be clear that when we talk about betrayal, it's sort of a big hairy word that feels uncomfortable to a lot of people. But the truth is, it feels uncomfortable when we think people are being intentional about it. They're be they're betraying us on purpose. And in fact, the vast majority of betrayals are unintentional. So people don't even know what our perception is unless we tell them. But those betrayals can look like the, <laughs> the imposed scheduling system that is so rigid, it doesn't work for your practice. And so, you know, patients are either left waiting or they're left with short appointment times that are too short. And we can't, we have no input. We can't change it. It can be productivity requirements that are unreasonable for the practice. I heard from a physician just the other day who said in her busy family medicine practice, she had four 15-minute periods of administrative review during the day. Her administrators just said, nope, you owe, you owe us that time back, so we're taking those, and you're going to have to fit in four more patients during the day. You know, In a busy family medicine practice, seeing 32 patients a day isn't good for anyone. It's not good for the clinician. It's not good for the patient. You know, Not having those 15-minute breaks during the day means that prescriptions may be delayed and test results might not be reviewed until late in the evening. It just... Those are the kinds of things where people are making decisions that impact clinical care without understanding, without understanding the, the real implications and the impact down the line because they've never been clinicians. So that's the piece that feels like a betrayal. And I, 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 could, I could go on and on. You know, the EMR that, that <laughs> separates you from your patients during the day and your family at night, understaffing, all of those things. Some of them have components of burnout in addition to moral injury. And, you know, so for example, with understaffing, that means that people overwork because they're trying to do the work of one and a half or two people. So that is simply, that is purely a demand resource mismatch. But when you, when those clinicians say to their administrators, hey, I can't do a good job for my patients. I'm worried about their safety. When they bring that up and the administration says, yeah, that's sorry, we don't have the budget. This is what we get that feels like a betrayal. And that's where the moral injury piece comes in. I see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's interesting because I've heard, certainly not have not heard as many stories as you have, but some of the stories that I have heard from colleagues at other medical centers involve that sort of thing too, where there's 
let's say, echo technicians are short-staffed. So now physicians have to keep patients in the hospital for an extra two days so they can get the echocardiogram and the hospital won't just pay to hire someone new or perhaps someone new isn't available. Or during the pandemic, there were huge nursing shortages. I mean, beds were empty and patients were being turned away from the hospital, not because of lack of beds, but because of lack of nursing. Um, and it, it just seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that there are all these pressures and these pulls that take physicians in so many different directions and nurses too. And it's it, there's no like recourse. So there's no person you can go to to say, help me fix this problem. There are a ton of people in this sort of bureaucratic morass. And, and that makes the, the problem that much more difficult to pinpoint and to solve because it seems like it's a, I don't know, a myriad of problems rather than, or a plethora of problems rather than just, oh, there's one solution here. Is that, do you think that's right? I mean, there's an average of between five and eight layers of bureaucracy between the front lines and the decision makers in a big hospital system. That's a lot of, that's a lot of layers to get through to get somebody in a decision-making role to be able to pay attention to what you're saying that you need. Um, and when we look at how easy it is for people to hear our voice, for every physician in healthcare, there are 17 others, six of whom touch patients. So there are 11 people for every physician who do not touch patients who are administrative in some capacity. You know, 11 to one is, is not a great ratio for having our voices heard. Yeah. How did it get to, to this point? I'm relatively young, youngish. And, you know, it, it seems like it's always been this way as long. I mean, I graduated med school in 2015. It seems like it's been this way for as long as I've been training and practicing. But I, I've been speaking to some of the kind of veteran physicians who said, this is the worst it's ever been. But I don't understand what changed, when it changed, how gradual that change was. Maybe we can um, talk about the perhaps some, like some historical background here of how things shifted. Well, you're right. It's it, it. You did come out into probably the worst of it. So you haven't had the luxury of seeing what healthcare was like before, except in your own experience, right? <clears throat> Excuse me, as a patient. The real, what, what happened was in the 1980s, people started paying attention to the cost of healthcare. In the 70s and 80s, HMOs came into being health management organizations and tried to tried to restrict the flow of patients and control where patients could go and who they could see and whether they could be hospitalized as a means of controlling the cost of care that was skyrocketing. In the 90s there was a huge pushback against that. Patients were really unhappy and so they pushed their employers not to choose the HMO plans. And then in the 90s and the 2000s there started to be a movement towards consolidation and vertical integration of healthcare systems. So instead of having one main hospital and lots of community hospitals that were outlying or, or satellites, you know, the, that were feeding into that academic medical center, for example, the academic medical center started buying those community hospitals and treating them as satellites and feeders into the main medical center. That was a way to get market share and therefore leverage with insurance companies to get better rates, to get better reimbursement rates. 
they, they also started to vertically integrate. You no longer had just acute care hospitals and acute care clinicians. You started having nursing homes and insurance companies and everything in between that got rolled up into these big healthcare systems. And what that does is it captures the revenue from, from every aspect of healthcare into, and concentrates it into one healthcare entity. The problem with that is it also creates a functional monopoly. And so competition goes down, prices go up, outcomes don't improve, even though that's what we were promised. Wages are suppressed. Mobility of clinicians is suppressed. So we can no longer trust that if we don't like one job, we can go, we can leave and go somewhere else. That's not always the case anymore, unless we want to uproot our families. So really that's, that's what's happened. And, and it's been in the last, um, you know, it started in the nineties, but it's really, it really took off in the late two thousands and it's reached a peak where the FTC, the federal trade commission is now paying attention to it because it's gotten so healthcare systems have gotten so big. Yeah. I, when you refer to physician mobility, do you mean like the the non-compete clauses that exist in physician contracts, which I mean, for our listeners, basically, if you, you sign a contract with a medical center, they basically say you can't work within a certain radius of the current medical center you're, you're working at or signing the contract for. And so, you know, you, when you leave, you basically have to leave the city. You have to go somewhere else. Is that kind of what you're referring to? Correct. Is there any place or center or group of hospitals that you feel is doing things well, it is approaching this problem in a healthy way? There are some that are trying. There are some that do it in pieces, in places. We have struggled to find one that's doing it well everywhere. There are some that are starting to they're starting to recognize that their turnover is bad enough that they actually, and everything they've tried hasn't worked. So they're starting to turn to their employees and say, okay, what do you need? We're going to stop telling you what you need or guessing what you need. And we're going to ask you. So that isn't, that's an incredibly hopeful sign to me that things are starting to move in the right direction, but there are still very few. I mean, there are others, um, you know, I heard from another clinician another physician just a couple of days ago who said, my entire department wrote a letter to our administrators asking them, begging them to keep our experienced nurses. And it was completely ignored. You know, and I think a lot of the variability depends on who the leadership is. There are some really good leaders, some of healthcare systems, some of departments, some of just a division of a department, where people feel protected, they feel advocated for, they feel like somebody has their back and is fighting for them, but it's a rare thing. And it's not something I've seen across any one organization consistently. Got it. Yeah. So it's, it's wholly dependent on the individual who is in power, so to speak, rather than their, rather than systemic changes that are happening or that, that might be on the horizon. Yeah. So I think we need to have those we need to have those powerful, powerfully advocating leaders to push for the systemic change because systemic change is hard. 
And culture change is hard. And in order to sustain that, you have to have a real champion, sort of an indefatigable cha- champion who's going to say, this is what, this is my vision for a better, for a better department or a better hospital. And then follow through on that. And I think that's, that's not something that we're seeing a lot of. Right. And, and what kind of systemic change in your mind would maybe not fix the entire problem, but at least mitigate it, attenuate it so that physicians don't feel this way or experience things in this way? As I said, the first place is starting by listening to your workforce. What do they need? What do they value? How, and it's, and it's really hard because just like, just like in a, in a relationship where someone betrays part of the the healing process is listening to the feedback, no matter what it is and accepting it. When nurses and physicians have felt betrayed through the pandemic, you know, especially through the pandemic, this started before COVID, but it intensified during COVID. There's going to be a lot pent up and people are going to need that space to process it. That's a hard thing to do, to sit in and listen to that as a, as a leader, because typically you know, many of the leaders that I've talked to really care about their workforce. They're doing their level best to keep the organization alive. They realize they need their clinicians, but they don't always know how to address the situation. What we need are organizations and leaders who are wise and learn from their mistakes and accept that not everything they do is going to be the right move. They're transparent in their communication. They are vulnerable and they're willing to say, okay, I I didn't get it right that time. Help me get it right this time. And they also, they're looking to improve, not to blame, right? They want to know how they did wrong so that we can do better next time rather than, okay, what went wrong so that we can pin the person responsible and move them out of the organization so that so that the organization isn't at risk. And wrapped up into all of that is the courage to both hear the feedback and hear the pushback from the workforce, but also to be willing to push back themselves. So when state or federal regulators come in and say, okay, we need this one more thing from your clinicians, the leadership is willing to say, nope, no more. No, we're not going to provide that because we give it to you three other ways. And our clinicians already are outstripped. So we're not going to do that. Let's negotiate something different. I wonder too, if if some of this problem comes from, I don't know, maybe like a cultural confusion about what doctors actually do or what medicine is for. And I, in particular, like if we think of physicians as like cogs in the machine or like technicians, then we are exactly where we should be and we're fulfilling our purpose. If we think of physicians as money makers, then this is exactly what we're doing. We're making money for these health systems. But if we think of physicians as having a duty to the patient and the, the, the health of the patient, then everything or the perspective on this changes and the way the system ought to be set up 
changes, the way we think about the system changes. And do you think there's something to that, that culturally we've sort of lost sight of what this is all for? I do. So I talk a lot about professionalism, and that doesn't mean what kind of earrings you wear, what kind of, whether you have tattoos or piercings or how short your skirt is. What it means is the covenant that we make with society when joining this profession. And as a profession, we agree to accumulate an, an exquisite and unique body of knowledge that we will use in service of good for a society that society can't provide for itself. And in exchange, we will get some benefits. We will get respect, we'll get a decent living, etc. What I think we have lost sight of, and what worries me, is that we're forgetting that covenant with society, the commitment that we, ma- that we made to care for those who can't care for themselves. And I think we've, we have allowed the profit motive or the revenue motive, if we're talking about nonprofit systems, but oh, by the way, they're largely run like for-profit organizations. Um, if we let that motive and that motivation drive our decision-making, if we're bottom line driven, not patient care driven, then we've started to lose our way. Now, I'm not naive. <laughs> I know that we need to pay attention to the bottom line in order to stay alive. But I feel like we need to do a much better job of negotiating what the compromises are that we make in order, and we need to get the clinician voice more engaged in what those compromises are as we're deciding how we run healthcare systems. Yeah. And to that point about nonprofits, and I I think any physician in academia can vouch for this, it's easily kind of Googleable. I mean, you look at the the money that is spent on new facilities, new you know pieces of artwork in the lobbies, fancy cafeterias, things like that. And I guess this is what I mean by cultural confusion. That in itself does not necessarily make patient care better. Now, there are certain aspects within these buildings that may help patient care. Having one person in a room rather than two, or you know, making sure everything that is needed for medical care is at bedside. That's super important. But the the kind of frills and, you know, fancy accoutrement, those that doesn't further patient care. That is a commercialized way of attracting more customers or consumers. And it seems that if nonprofits had in mind this the idea that it's the driving force behind nonprofit which is that you know you're doing this for a larger purpose or a greater greater good then these wouldn't be the focus of i don't know const- the the construction or the new fundraising i don't know events whatever it is and so it like that i look at that and i say something is off here you know something's not quite right and that's where I, I like see this confusion going on. Correct. In the book, I quoted an author, I think in The Atlantic, who said that all those things are smoke and mirrors for patients, trying to get them. They're things not related to patient care that are, are designed specifically to 
awe patients, to impress them, to make them think that they're in a really extravagant place that's the best. And it can, you know, sometimes, as you said, it diverts funds from where it should be used in patient care to these other, these more marketing types of places, right? Um, and I do, I think we need to ask that. We need to, we need to go back to holding our hospitals accountable, having boards be accountable for their mission statement, their value statement, their vision statements. Are the words on the walls what's happening in the halls, right? Because we, I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the first things I do if I'm considering a job is I go and look at what does this company say it is? What does this organization say it is? And that's their mission, vision, and values. It's great if they have an, an annual report. You know, you can sort of get some idea about whether those those mesh or not. But that's where I go first. And I think a lot of people do. And if it looks like a good mission and, it, and the, the vision and the values seem to align with mine, then I'm willing to work there. Too many times now what we're hearing from physicians and nurses and social workers and physical therapists and respiratory therapists, everybody across the board. Oh, and pharmacists. I see the mission statement. It is not what I'm practicing. And so there's a values misalignment. That's the other place that we need to get back to is to start saying, what are we here for? What is our goal in being here and holding our organizations accountable to that? Yeah. Maybe we can take a step back for a moment. I'm kind of curious about this question. Does moral injury affect certain subspecialists, specialists, generalists more than others? Have you noticed that this is a specialization problem? Or have you noticed, in addition, is this a American problem or an international problem? It is across all specialties. It is, we've heard from Germany, Switzerland, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, Brazil, they all have similar language. Their drivers may be different. So in the UK, it's not a privatized system, but it's a system that is being underfunded, system, systematically underfunded by the government. So the drivers may be different, but a lot of the challenges boil down to the same thing. I'm trying to do for my patients the very best that I can to, to treat them as I was trained to treat them, but I can't. And the, the reason I can't is beyond my control. The data on physician, this I guess is a study of like physician burnout rather than moral injury, but the data on physician burnout have like seesawed a bit over the past decade or so, at least my just kind of cursory reading of this. So folks at the Mayo Clinic, uh, physicians at the Mayo Clinic have been studying this and burnout seemed to improve between 2017 and 2020 and then sort of worsened 2020 to 2021. And then in an article just this year, May, in the Harvard Business Review, so a few physicians argued that they felt the burnout metrics seemed to be leveling out. There was an improvement in the curves and they wrote, there was actually some improvement in 2022 in resilience, the ability to find meaning in work activation and recharge when away from work, decompression. The good news is that activation remained stable throughout the pandemic for virtually everyone in healthcare. These are good people motivated by doing good. But the even better news is that decompression improved in 2022 after two years of steep decline. 
This data indicates that caregivers are learning how to cope with the stresses of this era. Their organizations are doing a better job of supporting them or both. So in the article, they suggest that organizations maybe need to encourage more self-care as one way to improve things, and that maybe that they, they even are doing this. So a couple of questions based on this. What do you make of these shifting numbers in burnout? Worsening, improving, worsening, improving. What can we, how can we explain this? And then is more self-care really one of the solutions here? The challenge with burnout is that it is the symptoms are all transdiagnostic, so they can reflect lots of different things. The improvement in burnout numbers between 2017 and 2020 were modest. It went from 47 to 42, I think, 46 to 42%. That's not great. We still have almost half of our clinicians saying that their job is grinding them to bits. But like that, that doesn't make any sense. These are not, you can't see those numbers and say that half of your workforce has a frailty, an individual frailty, right? It just doesn't compute. That's something wrong with the environment. Saying that burnout numbers worsened, oh, by the way, from 42% to 66% during the pandemic is believable. I would say that's true. They've dropped back to about 53%. But I think you need to look at who's still in the workforce. Lots of people who are close to retirement bailed. They said, I'm done. I can't do, I, I, I'm out. Lots of people have backed off and are doing less work. They're working maybe three days a week instead of five. So without knowing who's still in the workforce, I think those numbers are hard to explain. As far as whether or not the decompression is working, I think when you look at the difference between 2021 and 2022, I think that those were the numbers you quoted, 21 and 22, <laughs> you went from the depths of the pandemic to having vaccines and Paxlovid and, and getting back to some sense of normalcy, being able to treat patients in, again. So I, I think it's an artificial, it's an artificial improvement. It's still more than 50%, right? It, it's still not good. And what I think we're going to see as we move from 2022 to 2023 and 24 is that clinicians have been hopeful that the distress that they experienced during the pandemic would be a lesson for their healthcare systems that, okay, look, we told you this was going to happen. This did happen. Now, can you please do something different so that we don't just slide back to business as usual? What we had before the pandemic, which, oh, by the way, wasn't working. And I think if healthcare systems don't see this as an opportunity for change, that we're going to see worsening numbers again, or we're going to see increased turnover, increased departure. What do you make of the, I don't know, I feel like every medical center now, and there are even like consulting groups that do this, their drive towards wellness. They talk about wellness a lot, and they're like wellness committees and wellness institutes, and, you know, we're going to give you gym space. We're going to give you lounge space. My impression is that they feel like this is the response to burnout or moral injury in the same way that, you know, talking about self-care, you know, we're going to have a yoga class or a meditation class uh, as a way to help you. What do you make of this kind of empty promises or, or just wrong, wrong headedness? How do you think about this? 
I always think about Colin West's article in JAMA of 2020, which said that physicians are significantly more resilient than the average employed population. So we know what we need to do. We, <laughs> it defies belief that we could get through pre-med in college, medical school, and residency without knowing how to take care of ourselves and without building a significant well of resilience, right? So we are resilient. We are more resilient than most. Do those wellness programs help some people? Absolutely, they do. If it's more, if it's easier to get to the gym, if we don't have to, you know, pack up and go 15 minutes to the gym, unpack, you know, take a shower, blah, 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 and we can do it right after work, yeah, maybe that's going to help us with our well-being. That's, that's helping us to do what we know already to tune a high-performance machine. Right? It's like you don't put the high-performance athlete's gym 15 minutes away. You put it right where they are. So is that helping? It may be helping in a modest way. But a recent study by um, Linda Aiken that I think just came out in the last month looked at 15,000 nurses and physicians across 60 different hospitals. And they asked them, what, what, would, what do they need to improve their burnout? And all of those wellness offerings were way down at the bottom. What was way at the top was help me take care of my patients better. Help me do a better job. Make it easier for me to take care, to take good care of my patients. And if you look at the AMA, what they say is physicians, clinicians as a whole are happiest when they're providing high quality care. So break down the barriers that make it hard for me to care for my patients. Get rid of prior authorization. Make the EMR have an intuitive user interface so I don't spend all my time looking at it. You know, make sure I have enough staff to move patients through in an efficient way so that they're not unhappy when I get to the office and I have to spend the first three minutes apologizing for why I'm late again, right? So I think it's really interesting to talk to clinicians and ask them, what's getting in the way for you? What's the root of your distress? A lot of them are saying it's not about me per se. It's about the fact that I can't get my patients the care they need. I'm curious, how did you get involved in this topic? How did you get interested in this? <laughs> um, I, I say over and over again, I did not volunteer for this. I was conscripted <laughs> by the universe. I don't know. I had tried multiple different ways to practice to try to do it in a way that was sustainable for me and good for my patients. I ultimately ended up leaving clinical medicine, as you said in my bio. And part of the reason I did was because I could no longer practice in a way that I thought wasn't good for patients. When I was working for the army, I had the opportunity to see clinicians across many different specialties and all across the country in really different practice settings. And what I noticed was it didn't matter what specialty they were in, it didn't matter their seniority. If they were doing a meaningful level of clinical practice, they were struggling. And what they said to me over and over again, because I, I started getting informally curious about it. And they said to me over and over again, you know, I love my patients. I love the work I do. What's just grinding me to dust is everything that gets in the way of me being able to do those things. And it had gone from being a minor annoyance to really creating meaningful barriers between their ability to, for example, make a treatment plan and then follow through on it. Because getting an MRI, scheduling for surgery, getting medications authorized was just becoming harder and harder and harder. And so 
it started me thinking, and, and I would ask them, I, I also would ask them, oh, so you're burned out. And almost to a one, they used almost the same language, which was, ah, uh, that doesn't really fit, but I don't know what else to call it. So yeah, I guess. Then I also had a couple of experiences as the family member of a patient where I just thought, there's something I'm not getting here. There's something, there's something more at play than what is what it what appears on the surface. And that's when I started digging into, you know, sort of how does the money run? What are the motivations for clinicians? What are the motivations for administrators? And I started seeing these these mismatches, these values mismatches over and over again. And um came across moral injury and thought that feels right to me. And then when I went back and asked the clinicians I had asked whether they were burned out, I'd explain the I'd explain this concept and say, what do you think about that? And almost all of them said, absolutely. Yes, that's it. That feels like what I'm experiencing. Hmm. So Simon Talbot and I wrote that the first article in Stat News in 2018, really as a thought experiment. I mean, we, <laughs> we were both, we were both sort of quite happy in other jobs. We wrote the article expecting that it would just go by, go by the wayside the, or the way of all things burnout really didn't happen. So here I am doing this full time. And, and how do you feel about the kind of future of medicine? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? Where do you see it all kind of going if, if you could use your crystal ball for a moment? I think we have about two years left where we can really make some big changes on the heels of the pandemic and of what we've learned. I worry if we don't, we are going to we're going to have an entire generation of clinicians who feel disaffected and disenfranchised. And I think it is going to, I think our healthcare is going to suffer. Well, I was hoping for something more optimistic, but <laughs> I guess it's better to be realistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we have to, I think we have a couple years. A big part of the reason I wrote, if I betray these words, is because I feel like we need to know where medicine is right now, but we also need to know how it got here. Because if we have that blueprint of how we built this crazy house of medicine as it is right now, we can renovate it. We built it this way, we can renovate it, but we all need to get engaged in that process. And what I worry about is physicians feel like they're too busy, they don't have the skill set, they, you know, somebody else needs to fix this for me. That's kind of what's gotten us here. And if we want it to be different, we all need to get engaged in advocating for better for us and for our patients. On that note, Wendy Dean, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts. 